I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, who is China correspondent for Axios and author of the forthcoming book in 2022, Beijing Rules, Capitalism, the Coronavirus, and China's Quest for Global Influence. My guest today is Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. As you've pursued this ambitious book project, which is really a defining narrative for U.S.-China relations and the future of China, what has been the most fascinating exploration within the project? Well, the book centers around the nature of China's power on the international stage. And what's so interesting about China is that the way it wields international power, at least in the medium term, by which I mean, you know, for the next several decades, is a bit different than how the U.S. uh, has wielded power and how the U.S.-led international system, or at least U.S. and Europe, have viewed power. What do you find to be most misunderstood about China's place in the world right now and the relationship between the Chinese government, the Communist Party, and the Chinese people? Hmm. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that, well, it depends on, it depends on who's doing the misunderstanding, you know, for, for people who write about China have spent time there. Chinese people are not, um, something theoretical, you know, they're, they're people that we've interacted with. There's 1.4 billion Chinese people and they're so different from each other. There's an enormous amount of diversity. I mean, linguistic diversity, cultural diversity, ethnic diversity, uh, regional diversity, and ideological diversity inside of China. And I think you have to live there to, to understand that. You know, for example, you know, you think, oh, if I just learn Mandarin Chinese, then I can speak with everyone and I can understand everyone in China. And that's what, you know, once you've spent some time there and traveled, you realize that's completely untrue that learning Mandarin is really useful, but there's going to be plenty of regions and cities and villages where it's, um, you know, you're not going to be able to understand what's going on around you and you're still going to need a translator because there's so many dialects that are spoken there. And that's just an example of, you know, how very diverse, uh, you know, the people, people there really are. And I, I think you had to, you have to have visited China to, to really understand that. But that, that doesn't speak to your question about the relationship, maybe, perhaps, between the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, and the Chinese people. This, again, is something that's really, uh, it's difficult to talk about because, again, I would, I would again say that this is characterized by diversity. So, you know, it's at the, at the most basic level, if you want, you know, one of someone who isn't Chinese or Chinese, uh, a member of a Chinese diaspora community, if there's one thing that you want people to come away understanding, it's that, um, you know, Chinese people uh, aren't really represented by their government or by the Chinese Communist Party. And so it's really important to not blame them or view them as inherently suspicious or bad um, because 
they're all different. They have their own opinions and they don't really have the opportunity to set their own government's policies. But if you want to look at it a little bit more, you know, in, in a more sort of complicated sort of way, it's also important to understand that a lot of people do support the government and do support the, the party, um, or at least some of what the government does and some of what the party does, which also makes sense. Uh, you know, any government is flawed. And most governments have some things that they do reasonably well. Um, so it's also important to understand why the Chinese Communist Party does enjoy the support of, of some people and its successes. And I think once you start answering that question, you get a better sense of what China is like today. Has the theme of China's influence, but not only their influence, but their supremacy in a sense, in addressing the pandemic being the origin, the original ground zero, but then quickly course correcting, at least according to the data that the public sees, entrapping the world and especially rugged individualistic democracies in, in a really serious quagmire and, and public policy predicament. Yeah, it is. It has been really interesting to see uh, how China's leaders have not only presented a sense of confidence, but I think actually do genuinely feel a sense of confidence that their system of government has proven very effective at fighting the coronavirus. Uh, you know, I always want to add to this conversation that democracies have done perfectly well. Some democracies have done also perfectly well in combating the coronavirus. So if you look at Taiwan, um, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, to some extent, um, you know, plenty of democracies have done have done just fine. Uh, so I always like to emphasize that it's not a question of democracy versus authoritarianism. It's really more a question, if you want to generalize, of who had experience with SARS and who did not. So Vietnam, for example, also has done pretty well in fighting uh, coronavirus. It, you know, had experience with SARS. So I, I think that's, if we're going to, you know, make generalizations, that's the direction that I would go. But it's undeniable that China has done a better job than the United States at controlling the pandemic. Even if China is, you know, fudging its numbers a little bit, it's just undeniable. Uh, and they, they've also done a better job than, than Germany and France. Um, you know, if you want to maybe hold for a constant the fact that, you know, the U.S. had some, uh, you know, political troubles in 2020 that, that contributed to our ineffective response that Germany and France didn't have, for example. Um, and, and that is something that I think that uh, people in Western democracies need to come to terms with. They have to make space in their minds for the possibility, for the reality that the Chinese Communist Party in this instance, something that they did worked, you know, and we have to make space for that in our, in our understanding of what is the role of government in a, you know, this, in our postmodern world, what is, what is the role of privacy and public health um, and, you know, digital tracking in societies? These are all really complex questions um, that other, other non-Western democracies are doing, doing okay with. I mean, if you look at, you know, South Korea, um, they, they, Singapore, which is not, 
I don't know if that's really fully a liberal democracy, but um, sort of on the spectrum. They, you know, they did fine with, you know, citizens understand that we're going to do, you know, really strict contact tracing. We're going to use these apps to help, you know, as part of contact tracing. And, you know, generally speaking, citizens in those uh, countries accepted that and didn't feel oppressed by it. Um, so I think, I mean, particularly in the U.S., I think that we need to have a bit of a reckoning about the trade-off between what some people define as freedom, which is to say the government shouldn't do things like strict contact tracing, which involves, uh, you know, a, a non, um, which involves that, you know, compulsory handing over of private health data to the government. Um, and the trade-off between that and death, you know, the, the mass death that we've seen here in the U.S. So there is... I think increasingly going to be a perception of China's willful, if not deliberate entrapment of less efficient governments um, and their failure to respond to the pandemic. But I, I wanted to get a sense from you also not from the Chinese perception, but from the, the perception around China outside of Asia outside of the countries that succeeded with their mitigation, if you anticipate that there will be a more robust view that, especially if the consequence of COVID is felt for years, not a two-year period, but potentially longer, that there is an element of animus about the origin being in China and being responsible for the havoc around the world? That's a, a totally fair question. And, uh, you know, I think that if we're going to talk, you know, about systems of government and whether or not they work. I said that what China's, you know, system of government did do was stop the pandemic domestically. What that same system of government also did was, you know, do an early cover-up during the most important weeks for the entire global population. You know, those few weeks where local authorities in Wuhan uh, and the surrounding areas repressed knowledge, you know, that, that scientists and doctors were trying to, to bring forward, they repressed that. And that's, you know, the result of a system that um, is not transparent, where, you know, local government officials and, of course, central government officials both have the ability to suppress information and punish people they don't like and are, mot and are motivated, incentivized to do that by the fact that their promotions come from up above and come from their perceived performance rather than necessarily how, you know, the people below them to whom they should be responsible see them. And that was a massive failure of China's government, and they know it. And we know that they know it, and everyone in the world knows that the Chinese government knows that they failed. How do we know that? Because they have, you know, embarked on a massive global propaganda and disinformation campaign to obscure the fact that the coronavirus outbreak originated in, in China, in Wuhan. Um, and, you know, that's sort of what I mean about how the, you know, the coronavirus does demonstrate for us both the strengths and the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities of China's government, um, both domestically and internationally. And we've seen that 
perhaps in starkest and you know contrast and detail with the way that China has punished people who've called for an independent investigation into the origins of the coronavirus, which isn't a political question. That's a, it's a public health question. It's a scientific question. And China has levied sanctions, sorry, tariffs on Australia because the you know, last year when the Australian prime minister called for this independent inquiry. So that's really China showing its hand that it's afraid, uh, it's afraid of basic facts. When we think of your forthcoming book and the intersection of capitalism, this disease and China's quest for a kind of hegemonic supremacy, um, where do you think that the collision course of those three things is going? Um, because there is the kind of status quo we live in now where there is no international body or even group of countries or allied powers that can really influence anything that China does. Um, so the, what is sort of the most curious uh, endgame as you see this decade coming into, into our vision, um, you know, what are some of the hypothetical results of this quest for global influence that you see materializing in these next years? Yeah, so the, the capitalism comes in, uh, and, and this is you know getting to my point on China's, the nature of China's power. China has learned how to weaponize access to its markets in a, a very purely political and illiberal way, in a way that the U.S. has not done. Now, certainly the U.S. has uh, used and, you know, some would say taken advantage of its position as, you know, uh, its position of dominance over the international financial system through the use of sanctions and the ability of the U.S., through sanctions to exercise extraterritorial enforcement of its own domestic laws. China is emulating that, but in a, a creative way. So China doesn't have dominance over the international financial system. The RMB is not the world's reserve currency. But China does have markets, and its market is, you know, it's the, by far the largest emerging market in the world. I don't, I don't even know if it counts as an emerging market anymore, but it's where, it's where so much of the growth has been. Um, and it's where, you know, so many companies and countries have seen that, you know, the future of prosperity lies, which means that if China can learn how to control access to that market along political lines, it gives it an enormous amount of power. And that's precisely what, uh, that's precisely what the Chinese government has learned how to do in the past 10 to 15 years. And it's using that power uh, more and more frequently. And that's something that presents a real challenge to, you know, the U.S.-led you know, free market system because we're our system isn't designed to deal with a politi with politicized access to markets in this way, particularly given the WTO's. Um, well, it's it's kind of stuck the WTO gridlock, if you will, 
uh, we don't have a system designed to, to counter that. So that's, and, and we saw I, some of that with, uh, you know, over the past year with the coronavirus. If I can maybe even step back from that a little bit, and this is not necessarily um, a, a look at China's weaponizing of something, but it is an interesting observation that, that really brought home to everyone the nature of our dependence on, on China, uh, in, at least in our supply chains was, you know, you remember this, we all know, we all experienced this very deeply was the, um, the shortage of PPE, you know, in the, the early months of the pandemic and how so much PPE we realized, um, you know, the supply chains traced back to, to China. And that I think brought, really brought home to people in a way that we, that hadn't before of that dependence. Now, uh, you know, China didn't hoard it necessarily. It didn't try to get everyone to stop recognizing Taiwan in order to, to give, or to, I don't know, it didn't, it didn't demand that the U.S. give up its nuclear weapons in order to receive PPE. That didn't happen. But it really brought home, um, the interdependence we have. And, and there's a term, I, f- I forget who came up with this term, but I think it's called weaponized interdependence, where that kind of linkage of our economies, China has, is learning and has learned how to, to use that for its political gain. So, you know, that's the kind of power that, that China really has right now and that it's using to pretty great effect. Uh, and that would be sort of the, the capitalism angle of my book. Do you foresee the weaponization to intensify from China? Well, certainly under the Trump administration, we saw a lot of new measures and policies that were designed to push back against some of the different ways that, that China is using its production capacity uh, and its companies and its markets. And that was, you know, uh, some beginning steps. But overall, um, you know, there has there has been very little pushback. I think you asked, you know, how long how long will China do this? How far can they push it? Well, they'll, well, they'll they'll do it as long as we let them <laughs> and they'll, they'll push us, well, they'll push until we, until we push back. Um, and, you know, I think there is a way for countries to act in concert with each other to put down their foot and say, well, you know, the next time you block one of our companies because they quoted the Dalai Lama, here are the specific measures that we will implement as consequences for you having done that. Um, and if we can, you know, if, if we can get enough countries to agree to that, um, and to make the consequences clear and to stick to that, I think that could that could change China's behavior. I think what has stopped people from doing that is the belief that it is one fear of doing harm. You know, well, if we do that, then China will retaliate, and that will just cause even greater you know um, harm to businesses. I'm so, I'm certainly sympathetic to that. It's it's not an easy issue, but I think what we are continuing to see is that China, under the leadership of Xi Jinping. Uh, you know, is going to to take as much as it can and to push as far as it can until it gets pushed back. Um, and at the end of the day, those loss, whatever losses occur, are because of the Chinese government's own actions. Um, and we don't we don't have control over that. I think it's a little bit of a fantasy to think that we can prevent bad things from happening when the Chinese government is the one who is doing those bad things. Um, so, I, you know, to to perhaps relieve some of that sense of guilt that I think people may feel in, in trying to push back against some of this. And, and I want to be really clear here that what I'm talking about is not pure geopolitical power. Myself personally, and I know that quite a number of you know people in DC feel this way, 
this isn't an issue of, you know, we're afraid that China, that, you know, this country is going to upset this person, this other country's status as a superpower. That's not what it's about for me. What it's about for me is China's use of this power in an illiberal way to silence speech, important speech, to uh, justify and cover up its human rights abuses and the genocide that it is committing right now against Uyghurs and other Muslim groups in Xinjiang. Uh, you know, and the, the way that it has crushed democracy, a very, you know, a, a functioning, relatively liberal, um, you know, set of uh, laws and, and traditions in Hong Kong. If, you know, if China were using its power to like help promote the rule of law and help promote human rights and make, you know, make the world a better place for, um, you know, oppressed groups, that would be different, but that's not what they're doing. And that's not how they're using this power. And that's why I find it so deeply concerning uh, and believe that we should push back against it to the extent that, you know, um, democracies from Japan to South Korea, Taiwan, Germany, France, you know, Canada, anywhere. On the question of human rights abuses and specifically the internment camps or concentration camps, you refer to it as a genocide. And that may be 100% true. Do you get it? Do you know from your reporting, what is the understanding of the Chinese population about that genocide or those crimes against humanity that are occurring? Well, I have spoken uh, with, uh, you know, via phone, uh, you know, Zoom, in fact, <laughs> with you know, some, you know, Chinese people, uh, just average people. Um, that's, of course, very anecdotal. Uh, but, you know, from those conversations I've had um, and also from what I've read, I think many, many Chinese people have no idea what's happening. Um, there, well, certainly, you know, as of two years ago, people had no idea what was happening because China wasn't talking about it. Now, uh, and, and, you know, every, and Western reporting as, you know, the reports on that were blocked, so they couldn't be accessed. So no, people didn't know. Now the Chinese government has changed their, you know, their talking points on this and they're, they're, they do speak about it somewhat openly. And they say these are, you know, vocational training centers in order, and, and, you know, sort of de, de-radicalization centers because there is a, uh, you know, there's a terrorism problem in Xinjiang. That's, that's the official party line. And so more people in mainland China do know about it. Um, and you get a range of views. You know, you get people, let's be clear here, there is longstanding deep-seated racism in, in China. Uh, you know, many people view Uyghurs um, as, as dangerous, dirty, violent, uneducated thieves. These are stereotypes of, of Uyghurs. So many, and I, you know, I used to live in China. I encountered people regularly, you know, who would, would say these kinds of things about Uyghurs. And there's, there hasn't been much ability to push for Uyghurs to push back against that. So I think that, you know, Uyghurs are at a bit, you know, such a disadvantage in trying to gain sympathy among, um, you know, among the broader Han population. However, there certainly are people who are concerned about what's happening there, who, who see that, you know, probably there's some degree of, of government excess, you know, the ex, uh, of, you know, that maybe some things are kind of bad there. Um, but I will also say that, you know, a lot of Chinese people are afraid, genuinely do have genuine fears 
um, that I think are, are exaggerated, but they're, they're real. So in, in 2015, nine Uyghurs carrying knives committed a terrorist attack at a train station and killed like 33 people. That's a real thing that happened, you know. So you, you get a range, uh, you get a range of what of, of things there. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, thank you so much for your insight today. I urge our listeners to check out her forthcoming book, Beijing Rules, Capitalism, the Coronavirus, and China's Quest for Global Influence. 